Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers the current events surrounding Season 3, Part 5 in the summer of 2017. What was in the news? What was on the cover of Time Magazine? What film was number one on the box office? Part 5 aired on Sunday, June 4th, 2017. A significant moment now that we don't have two episodes paired together. Um, they're not dropping you know, three and four basically came out at the same time as one and two anyways, because it was on streaming. This is like a brand new episode. Nobody's seen it beforehand. One hour airing on a Sunday. It's the beginning of the regular run. The number one film this particular weekend was Wonder Woman, which made $103.2 million. Now we're way out of the league of 1990 numbers for a weekend gross. I mean, there were movies, hit movies that were making that much in their entire run back then. So if Twin Peaks could not really overcome the constant flow of Trump-related news to capture the zeitgeist as it had in the spring of 1990, there was another piece of culture from this period that was able to dominate the discourse, and it did so precisely by playing into larger debates about feminist representation and filmmaking that fit the politicized moment, but also, of course, by being part of a massive comic book franchise which guaranteed a gargantuan footprint in the 2010s. Wonder Woman sent its ageless superheroine, Diana, from a remote Grecian island into the midst of World War I, where she battles both Germans and the god of war, Ares. It was well-received by critics as a fun, vivid, and at times even moving slice of action cinema. The film was praised by the Chicago Tribune for, like Captain America, offering the pleasures of period recreation for a popular audience. Jenkins and her design team make 1918-era London, war-torn Belgium, the Ottoman Empire, and other locales look freshly realized with a strong point of view, there are scenes here of dispossessed war refugees, witnessed by an astonished and heartbroken Diana that carry unusual gravity for a comic book adaptation. The film would stay in think piece headlines for months, as feminists debated its merits, especially after polarizing comments from James Cameron, who compared Diana unfavorably to his own depictions of Sarah Connor. Meanwhile, the entire concept of pop feminism was also called into question, especially by leftists, as was Gal Gadot's proud involvement in the Israeli Defense Forces and support for their 2014 siege on Gaza. What leftists were cringing at in terms of liberal mainstream uh, celebration of Wonder Woman is probably best represented by the moment when Gloria Steinem would present Hillary Clinton with a Wonder Woman award for, quote, speaking truth to power. The UN also attempted to use Wonder Woman as an international symbol for female power, although an internal revolt over the appropriateness of this gesture quashed the entire project. To stick with the current moment, though, June 4th, 2017, over this weekend, Wonder Woman set several records, including the biggest domestic debut for a female director, Patty Jenkins, and the biggest non-sequel or non-Superman Batman DC release. That, that one's a little bit more niche as a benchmark. On a relatively quiet news day, uh, President Trump tended to save his big gestures for the weekdays, Ariana Grande headlined a second concert, a follow-up to her first a uh, little earlier in the week in Manchester, England. The concert was called One Love Manchester. and It was a benefit for the victims who'd been injured during a terrorist attack at her earlier concert. She was joined both live on stage and through video by Stevie Wonder, Coldplay, Miley Cyrus, Justin Bieber, Katy Perry, Pharrell, Robbie Williams, and in a surprise climactic appearance, Liam Gallagher, lead singer of Oasis, the rock group most closely associated with this city. The suicide bombing that this event was responding to took place at that earlier Ariana Grande concert in Manchester the night after the return's premiere. I remember reading about this in a friend's Brooklyn apartment where I was visiting at the time and where I had just watched parts one through four a day or two earlier. 
it's strange to reach a point in this Twin Peaks historical context discussion where I can remember both the Twin Peaks episode and the contemporaneous news story of that moment. 22 people, many of them children, given Grande's fan base, were killed in the fourth deadliest terrorist attack of all time on UK soil. There's been no deadlier attack in the West by an Islamic terrorist since then. The concert was a massive event, aired live on BBC One with 55,000 in attendance and even more heightened security given not just the initial attack, but also a subsequent terrorist attack at the London Bridge days earlier. Paul McCartney, U2, and others read messages of support, and proceeds went to an emergency fund for the over 500 people injured. The Red Cross would also report over 10 million pounds in donations in the 12 hours afterwards. The bombing was the big story leading up to the 2017 Parliament elections, in which Jeremy Corbyn faced off against Theresa May. Refusing to take the conventional, hawkish line after the attack, despite media pressure, Corbyn ended up nearly taking May's prime ministership away, and significantly damaging the Tory majority. Sadly, though, this would be the high-water mark for his labor insurgency. Two and a half years later, he'd be utterly decimated by Boris Johnson in an election much more defined by the ongoing Brexit controversy as the UK headed toward leaving the European Union. Time magazine's cover for May 29, 2017, the week ending at this point, was an image of the White House turning into the St. Basil's Cathedral. You might remember this one. This was one of Time's most famous covers ever, dated six days before this episode, although publicized much earlier. In fact, going into the weekend of the premiere, this was being promoted on social media. It shows the White House transforming brick by brick into quote-unquote the Kremlin, although in fact the building shown with its distinctive multicolored onion-shaped domes is, as I just said, St. Basil's Cathedral. That was a one-time Orthodox church that was turned into a museum, uh, which is located in Red Square right next to, but not within, the Kremlin. Time Magazine on Twitter was so proud of this image that it initially unveiled it as an animation, where you would see the actual White House transform. An article celebrated the artistic design by Ed Grable at Brobell Design, while Mad Magazine took credit for using a similar visual idea several months earlier. The cover was connected to a story titled Inside Russia's Social Media War on America, whose claims are a bit less bold than the cover suggests, as was often the case with the Russiagate story that dominated Trump coverage for several years. They were always implying and outright stating at its more wacky fringes that there was an elaborate conspiracy at play between Putin and Trump, the leader of Russia, and a U.S. businessman who may have been a sleeper agent Manchurian candidate since the 80s. What the article documents instead is more mundane. Bots, memes, Facebook groups linked to Russian actors undertaking an effort to avenge what they regarded as interference in a Russian election by then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton several years earlier. The more striking aspects of the story have less to do with the strained attempt to build this geopolitical conflict into a massive new Cold War, and more to do with the depiction of social media as a wash in flagrant lies, hyperbole, and hyper-targeted flame wars, or propaganda attempts. And it's worth noting that the contours of that story have only grown in recent years. The author references the Pizzagate conspiracy theory, a precursor to QAnon. Even as ultimately not very much came out of the more heated Russia theories, nor even the Mueller investigation that was set up to explore them the uh, FBI agent who we'll be talking about in some of these uh, current event sections, Bob Mueller, who was uh, tasked to investigate Trump. As is often the case, the attempt to find a foreign dragon knocking at the door was largely unnecessary. There are already plenty of demons rooted deeply within the American psyche itself to explain the shock and mayhem unleashed by 2016 and beyond. Indeed, in one of its more insightful passages, 
the piece itself acknowledges one problem. The fear of Russian influence operations can be more damaging than the operations themselves. Eager to appear more powerful than they are, the Russians would consider it a success if you question the truth of your news sources, knowing that Moscow might be lurking in your Facebook or Twitter feed. I'd also add to that quote uh, that in some of these cases, elements of the U.S. government might be pleased if you question the truth of a particular news source as well. When initially sharing this cover on Twitter, Time Magazine oddly enough linked it to another article, Trump's Loyalty Test, which is more about the president's chaotic managerial style than any potential relationship to Russia. One passage in that piece is striking, a quote from John McClain declaring, I can't relate to those people who weather vain. Do what's right. One reason that that quote seems particularly notable in retrospect is that uh, McCain's main ally at this time, who is described in this very piece as leading a serious senatorial inquiry into Trump, was Lindsey Graham, and he would pivot to becoming a Trump lapdog not long after McCain passed away the following year. That's it for this episode. Tomorrow we will continue with part five in the weeds, looking at the character statistics, timeline of events, and uh, of course, coffee, pie, and donuts. You can rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help support it. And you can also become a patron at patreon.com slash lost in the movies. See you tomorrow. Thank you.